Hi, this is Sands Hall, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And I'm the Drinks with Tony Show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Sands Hall. She's the author of Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology. And she's also the author of Catching Heaven and Tools of the Writer's Craft. Sands, how are you? I'm well, Tony. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Well, it's a pleasure. A fellow ex-Jehovah's Witness to a fellow ex-Scientologist. Actually, all that former stuff. We belong to the former club. Yes. Is it? It blows, I mean, it blows my mind because sometimes I kind of go, what, what, who would I be if I didn't, if I didn't? Would I be more of an asshole or less of an asshole? It's, I don't know if I got empathy out of it or what. Do you feel the same way sometimes with, uh, with your narrative of your life? You know, one of the things I try to do with my memoir is I try to invite the reader in to what in my particular circumstances, my particular upbringing, my particular family, my particular tragedy that caused me to find a cult like Scientology attractive in the first place. You obviously were brought up in yours, right? You didn't choose it. Is that right? I didn't choose it, but I understand it. I understand why people would be drawn to it. I'm very, um, and my parents were drawn into it. So I'm really, um, I'm aware of the, uh, the, the attraction. Absolutely. And really the difference being that perhaps it was because your parents were in it, you were kind of then indoctrinated into it as a child or as a young, yes. Whereas for me, it was a choice I made. And there's a big difference there. But so one of the things I try to do is take the reader with me on, as I say, my particular circumstances, but also what was appealing what did I find attractive? What was it that made sense in my particular world at that time that was answering questions, aching, huge, anguished questions that at the time I was going through? And at the same time, that's, that's what we're in. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I still have those aching existential dread questions, but at least we all, we're all here with each other kind of going, oh, we all have them. Okay, well, let's just keep plugging along. I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but... If you have those answers, if those answers are given to you, it's kind of cool. I want that. (laughs) Well, that is absolutely, I think, one of the draws, frankly, of any religion, right? It's, or any, really, not so much necessarily a spiritual path, but absolutely a religion that has an organization and a structure around it. It's incredibly appealing. I think it's about, I think it very much speaks to the rise of fundamentalism across the planet right now, which is just... Tell me what to do, tell me what to wear, tell me what to say, tell me what to think, and then I don't have to figure that out for myself because that is the big existential mo- It really is. Like, why am I here? What is my purpose? What is there meaning to my sitting in traffic? Is there meaning to the goodness that happens and the badness that happens? We're always circling those questions, I think. And, and I got, well, I got a red hoodie on. I don't know if I'm a crip or a blood. This is the situation. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah, watch out. Just, but I would like neither one to come at you. Let's just put it that way. No, but I think that's a really um, universal longing from the times that we see 
you know, in the great old caves in 20, 30,000 years BCE of people drawing animals on the insides of caves. There was questioning, I think, going on. And as soon as that glimmer of we actually die started to uh, to come into people's consciousness, humans, humanoids' consciousness, I think there becomes that thing of, well, then what? And then if what then, then we start to think about, well, what now? I think those are big questions. Yes. <laughs> those are huge questions. Because as far as I was concerned, since I was a kid, I was going to hopefully make it through Armageddon if God didn't see when I was masturbating. And then, um, yeah, yeah. And, and then I had this weird belief where I'm like, well, what he's going to do is put me in the middle of a room and I'm going to have to sit there and explain it to everyone because I was the only one that ever did this. And I'm so ashamed. And then I was going to live for a thousand years and then have a test from Satan and then live forever. And there would be a complete wiping out of anyone who wasn't a Jehovah's Witness on this earth. So that was my, but my old death plan was like, well, I'll probably die at Armageddon, but at least maybe I can help a few people through. It was so whacked out. But, um, but the death thing, is it's, it's intriguing. And then to be away from it, what do you do? How do you? How do you, how do you, like, one, because I know, I know with myself I had to go through a lot of therapy. I'm still going through therapy for this. But I had to go through a lot of therapy to grapple with just existence. How, what was, what was the first thing that kind of made you doubt in the Scientologist? And then what was, how's that death question now? <laughs> I threw a lot at you. You just, you go where you need to go. I'm hanging out. We're chatting. Well, I think that one of the things that really intrigued me about Scientology first was that I was, my brother had suffered a terrible accident and I was undergoing a kind of emotional and spiritual vertigo and one of the things I, I met a, a, a man who played upright bass, actually I, actually I think I fell in love with jazz as much as I fell in love with this guy Jamie because I had never really heard jazz before and I was just, just taken just with two dollar bills opposite what's, you know, Celebrity Center um, where I then started working as a waitress. And what was very appealing to me was the order. One of the things L. Ron Hubbard does is he just sort of makes, he makes, he takes chaotic things and puts structure around them. And, and sometimes you can laugh at the structure and say, oh my God, that is not what happiness is. Or at other times you can say, well, actually that's a really pretty clear dis- discussion of what it is, you know, like what is understanding or what, you know, what is knowledge or... Um, so those things were extremely appealing to me. Um, and then they handled death in a very different way, which was basically, again, and this to me is one of the great transgressions of order or of organized religions, Christianity. It's just, I mean, I have, I'm going to be reading tomorrow evening uh, with a friend named Maggie Rowe, who wrote a fantastic book called Sin it. Bravely. Yeah, She's yeah. just wonderful. I, she, she was on Drinks with Tony. That's wonderful. I'm having dinner with her tonight. So... Um, and we'll talk about you. So, but her evangelical book is very much about the evangelicals. No one can be saved except for you know in her particular religion. And I think that's with Scientology. It's quite similar. There's no way to get out of the trap that is the penal colony of planet Earth without going through this enormous and in the case of Scientology, extremely expensive and extremely lengthy uh, processing of various kinds. But then what happens is you are an aware soul 
and you can return to bodies as you like, or better yet, you don't ever have to be in a body again, and you can, you know, traverse the planets. This is very, very appealing to a lot of people. It's sort of like take Star Wars and, you know, multiply it by 100. That's idea. Well, and it sounds great, and that's why people read science fiction and love it, and that's why LHR was a, he's a sci-fi writer. The guy knows how to create worlds. It's genius. He was very, very good at that. There was a joke, I remember, early on, one of my very first brunches uh, was actually with, with Jamie Font, who was the bass player, and at that lunch was like Chick Corea and Gail Moran, these really cool people in the world of jazz, which made Scientology very appealing, right? Because then that's the joy of celebrity. It's like if they wear that watch and they wear that perfume or they practice that religion, that watch or that perfume or that religion is cool to do. But there was a joke at the table that day, which is that usually it's life's a bitch and then you die. And with Scientology, it was life's a bitch and then you live forever. It's, you know, And that was high hilarity. And I, I found it funny, too. But amongst the things that was very appealing was the idea of these Buddhist notions of reincarnation. And frankly, more people on the planet believe that we have been here before and will come back than don't. I mean, our little empirical United States, you know... And sort of Western Europe have this sort of, you know, life's a bitch and then you die. But there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of, of cultures around the world that believe very strongly that either our ancestors or we have, will, have been here and will return. So to codify that in under a kind of scientific rubric to make it see not so woo-woo was extremely attractive to me to say, okay, yes, this explains why... Not that a book was incredibly well written or I just was attracted to costumes of the period and I saw the movies, that why certain periods seemed incredibly vivid to me and others did not. So it was explained all those kinds of things to me for good or for bad and for right or for wrong or for true or not true. It doesn't really matter. As a, my sweetheart, one of my, a sweetheart at the time said, you know, I, I wonder if it's all imagination, but you know, if it's, if working on it makes you a better person, then what's the matter with that? And, you know, that comforted me for quite some time, you know, holding that close to my heart. But in the end, I simply couldn't stomach the degree of constraining upon my, I would have to say, my curiosity. There were certain places, if I went there and I read something negative about Scientology, of course, and there was lots of negative things, I would get so stirred up and they would basically say clearly you should not read these things because they get you stirred up. So I began to put these little blinders on. This I have this vision of this little headset Tony that you know you kind of you kind of like ocular things when you're seeing the doctor and those things go and they say see better do you see the end better you kind of screw those into places and you do this little thing in your ears and there's a strange little headset that makes you look at the world in this slightly or a thoroughly skewed way in order to make sense out of staying in this thing. And that that's, in the end, when I was accepted by the, and I applied for this reason, to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and I got onto a campus where the entire reason that everybody's there is to indulge their curiosity in absolutely anything that they want. And it's like, I was, I was, I was floored by 
what I'd been missing for the previous like seven years of my life. Like I'd been studying one person, his name was L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, my curiosity took me interesting places and you were very much encouraged to use an encyclopedia or go where you want to go, but but it's constrained, it really is. So uh, I do remember being in the Iowa City Public Library, not the university one, because I knew they had a copy of L. Ron Hubbard, Messiah or Madman. And I went I went and found the call number, and I went up the stairs, and I went to the okay. stack. Okay, i got to stop you real quick. So you still believe in Scientology. What is the feeling when you're doing this? Because it probably is like, it, it's probably like a 30-year-old virgin walking into an orgy, and there's guns to your head. <laughs> is that close? Well, it's funny you should say that, because my heart is pounding. This is yeah. a, at a point, actually, that I have been in Iowa for about... I kind of stayed a little bit connected to Scientology the first year of the graduate program. The second year, I began to really try to pull away. And that meant breaking up with my sweetheart, which was very hard to do, and saying goodbye to a really close-knit group of friends. And that was really the hardest, hardest thing about it. And not only goodbye... You are ousted. I mean, it's, it's not a goodbye. It's kind of, it's an emotional, violent separation of immediacy. You clearly absolutely understand. I knew that I could not be in touch with them. That, or I could be, but I would actually be creating harm for them. And I didn't want to do that. I mean, they would have to then answer to the, we actually have... We Scientology has something called an ethics officer, yeah. and they would have to go report to the ethics officer. Yeah. They'd be in touch with an apostate. Anyway. No, I, we had judicial, judicial committees. I, I was just writing a du- judicial committee scene. I've been working on it this week. I've been reworking this one scene. Anyway, but yeah, I'm, I'm living it again, you know, with this goddamn script I'm working on. <laughs> so, so it's very vivid for you. Yeah. So yes, absolutely, my heart is pounding. I'm afraid someone's watching me. Now, I did not have this kind of uh, sense of being observed and watched and judged in this way when I was in Scientology, but in the process of leaving, I began to just suspect, it was a form of PTSD I see now, that I was being observed. So I walk up these steps into the stacks, I'm walking down the stacks, and suddenly I stop, and I am positive, Tony, that there is a man with a rifle behind one of the stacks. I literally stop and raise my hands in the air and slow, and I'm at the same time absolutely certain there's nobody there. But I stop and I raise my hands and I turn around and look, and of course there's nobody there. But this weird thing of being utterly convinced and equally convinced that I was being ridiculous, you know, and yet so powerful. And then I got that book, and, you know, I was embarrassed to check it out. I thought everybody could see, she's a Scientologist, you know. It's like this neon sign flashing, rather than, I'm simply curious, right? And I devoured that book, and it really was helpful. I mean, it was was one-sided, understandably, but it was it was the first time I really got to to look from the in the worms in the belly and really read and all and a certain number of my own oh, concerns and suspicions began to be validated and it really helped keep me from being drawn back again. I was yeah. very it was like I'd never understood the concept of a 
how a religion could break up a, a you know a relationship but it really really can and you know to this day I feel so sad in a way that we couldn't resolve it because he was you know the great irony in a way is I chose a really good man while I was in Scientology yeah, yeah. you know and then we had to part ways I mean I have a friend who's managed to marry she was still a Scientologist at the time and was married to a non-Scientologist for a good 12 years before she finally left but they she managed to do that she had no problem I just or with this particular guy there was no way to to uh, to, to make that happen so I'm divorced and um, when I got married I was in the Jehovah's Witnesses and she stayed in and I told her I was like okay I'm kind of done and that was it, that was four years into the marriage it took me another nine years to realize that the marriage died right there but um but it's it's really intense how they you know they love bomb the the person who does you know that oh you're they call it the unbelieving mate you have an unbelieving mate you know and it's just like one day he'll come back and it's all about let's try to string this guy back and um but it took me about five years before I could even read a book about Jehovah's Witnesses that was not written by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then it took me another five years to write a goddamn book about growing up Jehovah's Witnesses. But it's such an ingrained thing. It's and Even when I was writing that book, I felt guilty. But I'm like, i got to get this story out. I don't know if you felt it. Did you any, feel any twinges of guilt when you were writing your memoir? Or? I think what I attempted to do was to try and, as I said, said at the beginning of this chat to try to bring the reader into what it was that compelled me in and made me interested and so along the way I was able to speak to the things I found useful and things that even now I find I carry with them and I, I with me and I find them to be things I periodically refer to or think about um, and I was very grateful for that so in a way, I almost feel I bent over backwards to be as generous as possible to the church um, slash cult to, um, in a way, perhaps on one level protect myself and on another to really try and... So often people think, well, I would never join a cult. I am so above that. that I would never be pulled in in that way. And one of my... Just the other day, someone posted a, a, a lovely review on Facebook saying... I was one of those people that said it would never happen to me. In finishing Sans's book, I realized how easily it could have happened to me. So partly I'm trying to say it depends on where you are in your life, what's going on, what your background is, what your circumstances are. And again, I'll just point out such a difference is that I chose to get involved in my 30s, which I think, late 20s, early 30s, which I think is a really anguished time in people's lives. When you first, that's when you really begin to realize, you know, I think sometimes of that uh, two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry, I could not travel both, that there's this moment in Frost's poem where there's a, a sense you could go back to that, that fork in the road. But by the age of 30, you know that you've forked so many times, you can't go back to that original fork and travel both. And I think there becomes this existential... Uh, concerns and ennui and the whole purpose thing it's like okay I'm now on this trajectory and I don't I, I don't know if this trajectory is the one I want to be on and I think it's a, at that age when a lot of people turn to some sort of orderly thing but in your case you were brought up within it and your decision so brave and difficult to leave I mean both of us that's because 
it's a funny word that indoctrin that word indoctrination because it doesn't feel like it when it's happening to you it's not like you're sitting there muttering rote things it's like it's very slow it's like the the frog in the boiling water or whatever you know you don't realize how much you've adopted until you start to to remove the weird little headset, you know? Yeah. And then it's incredible uh, that you have to confront, wow, my belief system was so, I believe that, like just now your story about Armageddon, you know? It's like, you know, that that was a truth for you. Yeah, and had to be worked through, and I'm sure sometimes it still can rise up and go, oh my God, what if it's the case? What if it's the truth? Right. I love the way you say the truth. They say it like that, but, um, it, even uh, even when I left, I at the time I knew the Jehovah's Witnesses had it right, but they had something wrong. But I knew that the whole belief system was correct, and I just couldn't be a part of the part of it that was wrong. So I was trying to figure out how to uh, almost how to figure out the whole construct of what the Jehovah's Witnesses were and try to come up with a reason, because it blew my mind that I was going to see all of my friends killed. And, the, and it blew my mind that Jehovah's Witnesses will just sit there and hang out with you and say hi. And they're wait, they can't wait until you die like the scum that you are so they can inherit the earth. So, uh, yeah, it's, and then I just, and then I, and I just realized, I'm like, oh my God, because Jehovah's gonna, the one that's going to be exacting, you know, this complete death. And I'm like, these people go on and on about Hitler. Jehovah's a dick. This guy's going to take care of so many more people brutally. And that and it, that's that's when some cognitive reasoning kicked in, and I was like, "Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, but they just probably don't really got it totally right." So let me try to skew it a different way. I think it's I think this Jehovah guy is going to be a lot lighter, you know. And then later on, I was like, "In Jehovah, there's no such thing. Give me a break." But Isn't that took that like amazing. a decade. Yeah, yeah. It took you a decade to to literally yeah. take that helmet off, your yeah. own helmet off, and begin to realize, oh my God, what have I swallowed? You know. And it still hurt, and it still hurts sometimes. I mean, that's why, like, we were talking about the um, the oxygen documentary that just came out, where I, just, I couldn't watch part two because part one was just gutting me. I've had friends who like were disfellowshipped and killed themselves, and and this is you know when I was young, and I, one of the reasons I got out was because. I was grieving my friend Gibby's suicide, and they were just like, he was disfellowshipped. You're not supposed to grieve that. And I was like, well, I kind of want to kill myself now, so I'm trying to figure out how not to kill myself. And what you guys are doing is not helping. So I went to the library, and those libraries are amazing. And I, I went to the, sci- the, the Scientology, the psychology section, and I found a, a Tony Robbins book who was unfamiliar to me. And that was my first intro into like actually reading books outside of Jehovah's Witness publications. Next thing I know, I'm in the poetry section. And then I'm like, wait a second, this speaks to me more than anything ever. And then I'm reading my first novel that, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a novelist in a couple of years. You know, 15 years later, yeah, maybe. But <laughs> And how old were you when you made that discovery of like poetry and novels? So I was 22, but I was, st- I was still in the belief system enough that I ended up get I stayed in it and I ended up getting married at 24 to you know someone in the Jehovah's Witnesses who as far as the Jeho- as far as if you look outside and it's like oh my god that's a rock star cuz that's just a, you know she knew punk and she knew the she knew these worldly books I've been reading I'm going well we got to marry then I mean I'm not going to get any better than this cuz I I didn't even have a concept of marrying outside the religion so yeah it was it was, it was nuts 
Yeah, that's just, those are amazing things. And in a way, my progression was entirely opposite. I grew up in a very literary family and um, books and poems, and that was a huge expectation in my life. And so you can imagine the, speaking of anguish, the anguish I put my parents through when I joined this cult. They were these bohemian, fabulous people, started a writer's conference in Northern California called the Community of Writers at Squaw Valley. And they were just, yep, they were just deeply committed you know, literary folk, and so here I get into a place where I put a blinders on and don't read anything but L. Ron Hubbard. I remember when I met Jamie, the man I married, and that's how I got into Scientology. Um, my my mother said he doesn't read, and I said, well, yeah, he does read, but I knew that what she meant was all he reads is L. Ron Hubbard. And thinking to create some sort of affinity with my father, Tony, a published writer and, you know, a man of huge literary tastes and a lot of judgment, of course, as well. But Jamie says to my father, if I were to read a book, what book would you recommend? And Dad, after great and careful consideration, suggested Huckleberry Finn, thinking that that might intrigue him. Well, you know, I'm... I'm on my, I'm, we're on our honeymoon. This is so funny. Jamie's back goes out. And, of course, Scientology is all about metaphor. It's like, well, you know, what is the spine of a marriage? You know, it's like, and he's allergic to his gold ring. I mean, there's so many things. And they were just blaring, blinking lights of all that was wrong. And we couldn't actually, even though that's what Scientology does, like not unlike Christian science, it's like, what's the metaphor there, you know? And uh, just couldn't examine it. And he, every time he would open that book and read, he would promptly fall asleep. I think he maybe read like four pages wow. of that book. Yeah. It was so sad. But that was his effort. And yeah. I was grateful that Dad at least came back with a suggestion. It must have been appalling for Dad and Mom. Sort of, you know, the opposite. Because I come from a, came from a world that was this big with, right. you know, with the literary world and the poetry and the novels and the yeah. myths and the fairy tales and everything. And I narrowed it down to this one sci-fi writer who had started a religion. So it was, I think sometimes now, the older I get, the more kind of in a way sorrow can well up about the anguish I cause my parents, yeah. you know. Yeah, I imagine you have a similar feeling about causing your own parents anguish as well oh no i'm glad i caused them anguish yeah yeah and i hope they have more they'll listen to this podcast i hope they're anguishing right now (laughs) that's very funny (laughs) well that sounds like a lot of christians i know it's like i i I forgive everybody except the people i can't forgive (laughs) no i love i love my parents my 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 parents are pretty much well my my parents are out essentially so my dad had a nervous breakdown my uncle killed himself and my sister attempted suicide and i went to the elders because um i forget exactly why but i had touched someone's boobs so I had so five elders and I was sitting there and that whole that, that whole metaphor of the ring thing and all that what's wrong, what's going wrong. So when they found out that I touched a lady's boobs, well, I was a teenager. When they found that out, they were like, "Oh my God!" It was like the heavens opened up. There's like that's why everything that's happening to your family has happened to your family because of that. You held back, and Jehovah took His Holy Spirit from you, and so they put the whole weight on on uh, me touching a woman's boobs. 
of my dad having to be committed to the hospital, my uncle killing himself, and my sister attempting. Yeah. I find that obscene. I find that absolutely obscene. To put that, and how old were you at the time? I was 19. To put that guilt trip on you? Oh my God. And of course you took it on. And I was just, I was distraught. I was, I was in the middle of this just like crisis for about a year. And then, you know, and then it's just like, and at the same time, when I confessed, I felt a weight lift off of me, and I thought that was Jehovah telling me, okay, now I'm going to take care of you. So that's, that's how crazy it is. Well, that's the, the, but it's the belief system, of course. I mean, I'm sure it did feel good to get lift to, I mean, it always feels good to get rid of something you don't feel good about. I mean, it's, it's one of the great, brilliant aspects of the Catholic Church, you know, that you could sin all week and then go confess on Sunday and have you be absolved and go do it again you know i mean it's really fascinating that's a terrible terrible dismissal of the catholic church which i know is a wonderful religion for many yeah yeah well and plus i i touch boobs now so that's what's important let's be clear yes but let's be clear they're not being touching mine that's good yes (laughs) in case anybody should be getting any ideas (laughs) that's funny um yeah. No. Now you see. Now, now we're now we're talking about your boobs, and that's very weird and intimate. And that, my brain wasn't going there. I'm blushing right now. You are. You're quite red. <laughs> I was just rolling with it. Sorry. You, about you, that. you rolled well. You rolled really well. I. I yeah. Wow. Now I'm still blushing. I feel like. I feel like there's a spotlight on me. Okay. See, and this this is what used to happen to me at the Kingdom Hall when they would say anything about like. If you ever look at a woman to even, you know, and think about sex, you've already committed adultery with her. And then I knew that they were talking to me. They were talking to me. Yeah, you know, 14-year-old, horny. I, I can barely, I can't wear sweatpants. I have to wear, like, two pairs of underwear to school so no one sees nothing. But Okay, my blushing's gone. Let's get back to the interview. What do you want to ask? <laughs> no, I'm actually relieved to hear that your parents are out. Yeah. Yeah, so that means they can listen to this and, you know, and, and you'll say it. I'll never forgive them and they'll chuckle. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we have a good, I have a good relationship. the context, that was, you can imagine how shocking that was. <laughs> you, you seemed like a nice guy up until that statement. <laughs> so I'm glad we've cleared that up. Yes. Yeah, I, my aunt and my cousins and the other people, you know, many, like tons of people won't listen to this. And they just, as far as they're concerned, I'm already dead and... Uh, which, you know, great. More power to them, because I am a bad influence, and it is the truth, and they, they shouldn't talk to me. They, they're, they're in a better situation. Well, I think, again, what is so dastardly and obscene and awful is that anybody would sit in that kind of judgment about somebody else's spiritual and religious choices, and that's, again, I just, in the end, couldn't live with that. You know, it's like Scientology professed to say, Oh, you can be a Catholic and be a Scientologist. You could be a Buddhist and be a Catholic, a, a, a Scientologist. But in fact, if you actually practiced the religion, you could not be a Scientologist. So if you actually meditated, you couldn't be a Scientologist. If you went to, well, confessed your sins and went to communion or whatever, I, there was no way to be both because it would be mixing mixing practices which was not allowed so this uh this they profess this large jest about um, these such things but in fact they're just the way that all religions are ours is the way the truth and the light and yours is 
the way to hell and wrongdoing. You're going to be left behind to suffer and die while the rest of us are jetting around the planets without our bodies. And that was the case of Scientology in the case of yours. You're going to get through Armageddon and then after a thousand years have to face Satan. I mean, my God, how horrible. Even if you get through Armageddon, you still have this next thing you have to do. <laughs> I mean, you might enjoy your thousand years, but you're still dreading this encounter. <laughs> Oh, and we couldn't wait because we were going to grow to perfection. So we couldn't wait because in, in order to have, I mean, I didn't have sex until I was married when I was 25. So in order, to, it's, they just, they, they oppress you in every single way. You can't even test drive somebody. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so you don't even know what good sex is or what bad sex is. It's the best and the worst sex I've ever had in my life. Thank you. But at, at the same time, it's not about how people perform. It's about the... Um, the relation I've learned afterwards, you know, the relationship and all the elements, that's what's important. It's not just the act itself, which the Jehovah's Witnesses just smash on you. And we're all like, oh my God, I can't wait till we have perfect sex. Perfect sex is going to be so fun. It's just, it's such an idiotic thing where it's just like, no, the imperfections of it are rad. Wait, no, that's, this is, that's the cool part. If we were all perfect, we'd probably be like, nah, no, no, no. Let's go work on this next level. Uh, let's go see if we can meet L. Ron Hubbard in the in the Xenu universe. <laughs> yes, yes. You described that very well, yeah. That's a, an interesting aspect of Scientology, and I, I kind of appreciate that, you know, they consider, uh, they use the word Thetan, T-H-E-T-A-N, for soul, and the idea that you're, you really are equal, whether you're in a male body or a female body, I think where the real dastardly stuff comes is they also sort of think you're equal if you're in a child's body. And so that's when they ask children to make really terrible decisions, for instance, signing away at the age of nine, you know, a billion-year contract to be in the Sea Org when they don't know any better, and they just, they're just thetans in small bodies, quote-unquote, you know. And to me, that's one of the most reprehensible things that... Scientology uh, does is is a kind of create a slave class. Um, I sort of see that happening in our larger world as well. This effort to oppress people to such a degree that they can't actually look up and see what else is possible. To not pay them well, to you know not educate very well, in spite of all kinds of promises, to keep this group of people just busting their butts inside of the orgs to get things done. You know, from from being a an auditor or something lofty like a, a course supervisor to whether you're a janitor or you know it's like it's just your purpose is to keep Scientology working so that you can go on and save a bunch of lives you know and everybody's very convinced and it's again back to our first very first opening it's about meaning and purpose I have a reason to be on this planet and I know you know from day to day why I'm here rather than living a life of quiet desperation right going to my office job there's this you know I feel I'm contributing to some larger thing so I think that's really huge across all those all religions that it's like meaning um, yeah, it's one of the reasons why we're even here, so I can have a little, I got my little existence of a podcast, but it means a lot to me, and I get to hang out with cool people like you, and we talk about big truths. I mean, if if it was just like, oh, Sands, oh, yeah, you're going to be in L.A., cool, let's get a cup of coffee. We're not diving into this within the first 10 minutes, unless there's a microphone and a kind of a, we got to create content in front of us. No, we probably would. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm not, yeah, you're right. I, I, it would be the same conversation. <laughs> Well, I, don't, I totally get your point. But that to me is uh, what those little, sometimes little or big, but 
those efforts that we make with in our lives to to either bring joy to others or elucidate something or illuminate something. I mean, just the other day I directed a reading of a wonderful play um, and it was just four actors in this delightful script and a massive bunch of people showed up and laughed and cried and you realize, well, that was a good night. <laughs> you know, that was something I, I... And more and more, I think those are... Um, it's probably the biggest thing that I've really come to in a way, Tony, is that, I mean, I kind of plunged into Buddhism in a way when I got left Scientology because just the simple act of breathing, trying to keep your mind focused on just breath was such a good, good thing for me to do because I was monkey mind crazy going on. But I think even in Buddhism, which is like be here, you know, now and all that stuff, even there, there's constant aspiration. There's another plane to get to. There's some other. And I get all that and I see why it's so attractive. But, you know, it's like, you know, watching this woman spoon her soup and enjoy it. Or, you know, these adorable dogs that have been running around. Or it's just the, the quotidian nature of existence, you know. It's like having a bit of ginger beer with some lime in it and sitting outdoors in a gorgeous cafe it's like there is something about this is just fine that's really important to me that you know that I you know I don't know what happens if when I'm on my deathbed or facing some other thing but from now that to me is the most important thing is to stay as you know there's this moment and this moment and this moment and of course always moving on to well I'm going to direct this play in the fall and I've got I'm in the studio recording a new album and I've got you know a new book that I'm working on of course that's in the air you have to you or I do but there's also here's this moment and you know the enjoyment of it so you know that's that's been a big big shift and from the you know you've got to attain OT whatever or you've got to you know you got to go sit in a Buddhist temple for you know years or you know it's all similar or sit in a sit in a cubicle as assistant to the vice president until you become vice president 20 years later and you realize wait I've been working 80 hours a week for what so not that I have anything against corporate America no I do I got a lot I, I'm completely unemployable in that realm I was in corporate America for a little bit in my 20s and I went I can't this yeah no no I think I'm going to be a writer and they're like you're out of your mind and I'm like I know it's the worst decision ever and I don't advise it to anybody just on that same note it's interesting I watched that uh, documentary about Taylor Swift called Miss Americana the other evening and um, amongst the things I deeply appreciate is that she starts by saying "I, I just wanted to be good I wanted to be good at what I did and I wanted to be a good person and that's was the thing and then at a certain point in the in the documentary when she wins her second Grammy she talks about how as she was walking up to receive that award she went she said to herself well now you've accomplished that and then it was like this big maw opened up well well now what you know you're in your 20s and you've gotten your second count them to Grammy and what is that what you know where, what am I doing with my life and I think that's a lovely sort of way to reach that moment that we all have. What am I doing with my life? You know, nice, successful singer, but um, we all reach it. What am I doing? I had that. The, the, I, the, I, wrote, I wrote a film called Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk based on my novel, and that came out. And, but I was a part of the whole process, and it was brutal, and it was war. 
but it was fantastic and lovely and wore all at once and I would love to do it again. But at the end of that, I had the exact same thing. Wait a second, what are my dreams after this? Where do you go? I mean, yeah, I'd love to you know, go have accolades and best selling, but at the same time, that was the dream that I've been trying to get and I got it and it was beautiful. And everyone, you know, the acting and directing and just everyone a part of the whole process, it was, it blew my mind. And I'm just like, okay, I did that. I, I was in deep depression for a couple of years. That's why, we're at the, that's why we're doing drinks with Tony again, because I was in such deep depression. I'm like, what was the last thing that made me happy? And I was like, doing drinks with Tony in San Francisco. Okay, I'll just start it and we'll just see if people come. And here we are, you know, in the 70s, uh, I, weekly. I just I have to start it, do it weekly. That's it. Here we go. And then I'm very glad I did because it helped me get out of that depression. At the same time, it was like, go back to the roots. Go back to what feels really good. It's, it's, yeah, that's great. And also, I think something long ago, long before Scientology, actually, uh, that I have tried to adopt, which... It's just really been useful for me is when in doubt, do something. You know, like I remember being in my five-floor walk-up tub in the kitchen in Manhattan, and it would just, you know, some sort of despair settling in about not getting called for auditions because I was really working on being an actor then, and um, just go for a walk, just get out, just go do something. Take your journal, go write, just do something. And how useful that is to just change up when you start... You know, when your mind begins to churn in those ways, it can be so destructive, you know, to, to sort of take hold of yourself and say, in the old, lots of dogs, uh, in the old-fashioned parlance of get thee behind me, Satan, I sometimes feel when certain thoughts take hold and want and whirl around in your brain, that's what, I think that's kind of Satan-like. It's like, get the fuck out of my head. Stop it. And that's when I think moving, movement and action, going something that you love to do and doing it again. And it helps to, you know, oh my God, I have a purpose again. Yeah, I have a reason. And I, I, yeah, even on like, you know, working on my writing, I got to show up every single day for it. Um, and then when I don't show up, I don't feel good. And so it's, you know, the, it's like so what keeps you going is like, I know what I'm like when I don't. And it's not a nice place, so let's just do, you know. What you say there is so, so true. Yeah, there's some sort of creative thing that's got to be done for me every day, or there is this little niggly thing that starts coming in, and unhappiness starts. Yeah, it's really true. And, and, I, and if, I'm real, if I'm really diving into something, I'm vibrant, you know. It's like even my girlfriend's just like, what? Oh, my God, you're just on fire. And it's just... And it's because I sat there and I'm exhausted and I put way too much time into it and I shouldn't have done that much time, but the, but I found the puzzle, you know, I found, I found the storytelling puzzle of how to get to one thing to another, you know. The best feeling in the world. I was just remembering about a novel when I figured out the ending and I remember I live in a rural place, so this doesn't sound, it wasn't as awful as it sounds, but I ran outside shrieking, you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> it was like... You know, this amazing because those highs can be pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty yeah, wonderful. Is, yeah, and you have, I love the primal scream that um, you just reminded me because I used to take these yoga classes in San Francisco. There was this great place in the Castro, but they closed like in 2012. But it's where I found yoga and meditation, and and you, we couldn't meditate as Joe's witnesses, so I had panic attacks during meditation and sat there and went, 
It's just the old belief system, stay in it, stay in it. It's like everything that can help you, they don't want you to do. But uh, we had this, there was this one teacher who would make us do chakra dances and primal screams. I would walk out of there in such a mellow mood. Like, I was just like, I was so connected to earth and everything. It's just like, I just give everybody a hug. It probably It's probably what ecstasy feels like if I've never done the hard drugs, but it's probably what that feels like for a while, you know. That is so beautiful. And I have to say, because I experienced it myself in when I was leaving Scientology, that, yeah, meditating is really wild when your brain is telling you you shouldn't be meditating or that, you know, and it's just your heart's pounding and it's like the best thing is like you take another breath and you take another breath and you take another breath there's just that is an astounding act just that right there it's amazing to me the jehovah's witnesses they explain it is if you it's emptying of your mind and if you do that you're inviting the demons in so the demons are going to come in like um like a legion so it's not you're just not getting a demon you're getting all the demons coming at you so yeah, so to do those first meditations, I remember I was just like sitting there kind of like just shaking and just going, just work through it because what's going on in your life now is worse. So just see how this, see what happens here, see what happens here. And it was took many times to finally break through and kind of not have a panic attack during meditation. <laughs> they don't, you know, it's, anyway. I find that courage to be extraordinary, to, to be willing to sit there and have a panic attack is really, really intense. I remember when um, when I was at the University of Iowa in the Iowa Writers Workshop and I was getting into Buddhism, there was this weekend retreat, this Roshi came to town. And um, I sat all day, which was the plan, and all day on Sunday, and I couldn't sit still. I was, I mean, I, ju- I would be constantly moving. And I, as it happened, I was next to him in the circle, in the Sangha, and um, I'm sure, and I was aware of, you know, his, well, gentle curiosity. I just, I, might, I would keep straightening my spine. I just couldn't sit still. So we could, there was an opportunity to have a private consultation with him. So I took advantage of that on the late afternoon of the second day. And we, it was held at somebody's house. And I was told, you know, I had to do these various things, which was including to walk into the room and to prostrate myself three times, complete body prostration, stand back up and then bow, you know, namaste, and then all the way out again. And I was like, Sans, it's just a practice, you know, in Scientology you hold on to weird tin cans. It's just a practice, so just do it so that you can sit and talk, get this man's wisdom. So. I finally sit down opposite him and I pour out my heart about the fact I know I should leave Scientology but I keep feeling like I should go back and I'm completely tussling and the reason that I can't sit still and my mind is just churning, churning, churning is because I have this constant tussle in my brain and in my mind and he, uh, he kind of looks at the space between us on the, we're sitting cross-legged on two pillows and then he raises his eyes to mine and he says, it doesn't matter. Tony, my heart began to pound, and I, like, wanted to cry. It's like, it doesn't matter. And he said, if Scientology is your way, then you must return to it. And if it is not your way, then you must not. And I knew he 
he'd said the exact right thing, right? Scientology would have said, well, Scientology is the answer. You know, you got to come back, of course. But he left it completely to my tortured little soul to breathe through till I could find the answer for myself. I knew he was, I knew he was right, even though I was like so disappointed that he wasn't going to say, Buddhism is the answer. What you need to do is go take, you know, a four-month retreat. I don't know what I expected, but, you know, probably something like that. Buddhism is the answer. And it was, it doesn't matter. But I think what struck me over the years is about it doesn't matter. That idea that the path is yours. You're, you figure out your path. It doesn't matter which one. Because, you know, if you are pursuing it, it'll be what it needs to be. And that's comforting, too. Yeah, there's also a uh, degree of responsibility. Because now we have to take responsi- personal responsibility for every decision. So if you are in a situation where you're meditating and you're grappling with Scientology, and he's like, hey, you go back or you don't. They, there's two. You want there's a there's a multiple choice there, and there's no three, all or none of the above. It's two, and so along with going, okay, that's not it. But then there's the hard practice of getting the brain caught up with, hey guys, you know the synopsis is up there. We're we're changing things up, and they're like, no, 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 comfort, comfort, the same thing. Why, why are you making us change? Because change is so hard. I'm I'm I I I go nuts over change, and I'm constantly in therapy going. I need to change this about myself. I'm figuring it out. And it's just like, and my whole, the rest of my body's going, no, no, we're fine here. We're fine. It's just fine. I don't know if you have the same thing or if I need to check myself into a facility. No, I think we all have our own processes, Tony, and our own issues that I would just say come up again and again. Yeah, I just think we all have um, them. Yeah, whatever. So usually, you know, some early scarring that just makes us do that same thing again and again, you know. So. And it's, what, it's kind of what we do with it and go, okay, let's, you know, and like the Buddhists say, I think the Buddhists say it. Uh, I was in a mindfulness group last week, and they and they, they and they brought the word curiosity. And when you have when you, when you have a feeling, even if it's even if it's uh, anger or it's panic, be curious about it and go. Well, that's curious. Put the word curious there, and then you can you can explore it like a, like you're exploring anything, like you're exploring the petals of a flower. Oh, I'm exploring my own dark soul. Okay, I'm exploring the crappy things I can do as a human being and I'm choosing not to. Huh, okay. Yeah, I love that word and it's, as I say, that moment on the um, Iowa, University of Iowa campus when I realized this is what, it's a, it's a different kind of curiosity but it's that same idea. You can go where, where it interests you. And in the, in this, in the Buddhist tradition of a Vipassana tradition, that sense of don't, cling, but rather d- detach yourself enough to be able to see and to examine and to look and to hold it up and, and feel it and experience it and don't try to judge it or push it away or, you know, all that stuff. I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah, because we have our emotions. And so, you know, there's times, and I, I think like with panic, it's a lot of times it's a fear of maybe a fear of my own emotions, like how far can my anger go? All of a sudden it's like, boom, this anger just went to 10. What is that scares the shit out of me? And I go into shutdown mode where it's just like, what does this explore this anger? Why does it go to a 10? Why, you know, why can't it go to a five and you can try to figure it out? Why, you know, you realize it's not the other person's problem. It's your reaction. You have expectations. Okay, what are your expectations? And, and why do you have these huge expectations for that person? 
Oh, we can go. We can go on and on for about another four hours here. I'm glad you're going to be here all day. That one is so true. That one about reaction. It's not them. It's my reaction is huge. And the other one that has been a huge blessing to me when I remember is it's not about you. 98% of the time, it's not about you, Sans. You, you want to take it all on. It's like, oh, he's late because I, or he's, she's this because I, or, you know, whatever. And, you know, so mostly, 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 it has nothing to do with you and one. And it is such a relief to, to try and recall that when you're getting all bollocked up and emotional and think, Sans, what if you just remove it from the fact that you have any reason for this? It's not about you. Like, you know, maybe about half the time I can remember that. And, then, right. <laughs> and half the time is a good batting average because you're in the Hall of Fame right there. <laughs> it's probably not quite that often, but it is at least better. Yeah. It's so much better than it used to be when yeah. everything was taken. I took everything personally, you know. It's like me and marijuana never have been good friends because I thought when people said, oh, or this is so long ago, marijuana makes me paranoid I thought what that meant was you thought a cop would come to the door right. no I didn't understand that why did he just walk across the room and why does he have his hand held to his mouth in that way and why is she suddenly looking at me in this and I already do that or did that right. so being stoned was like no fun so I just thought I'll stick with my glass of wine. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not engaging in that I, anymore. Yeah, I tried it, and it's just not for me. Yeah. I tried it like a, I tried it for the first. I, I tried it a couple times when I was younger, and then I tried it like six years ago. When, that's when I really tried was it pot. Um, well, yeah, I actually got stoned. I didn't realize I'd never been stoned before. <laughs> and then, uh, and it was okay, and I and I enjoyed it, and it was fun, and it was kind of fun getting stoned with friends and watching movies and obsessing over. The certain things, but then um, I found I realized the next day I would be so depressed, and there was the next day that really, and I didn't know what was going on, and then I hit the pattern, and I went, I can't do that because my next day is, my next day is a bad place for me, and, and yeah. But you, but you figured it out, yeah. yeah. And so now I know I, I I smoked once this year because we went and saw this uh, this metals drone band sun and I'm like I gotta get stoned to see these guys and it was the perfect stone to get and it was just blowing my ears out and you know, the whole audience was stoned I'm just like we're all on the same page here walked out you know and there was no depression the next day so. That's nice, yeah. Everybody, I have so many friends who say, oh, it's all so different now, and you can, you know, dial what you want, and it's like, nah, nah, whatever, I'm just going to stick with my glass of wine. <laughs> I just, it's make, I'm just not, I just don't want to. But it's interesting that, that just that idea of being paranoid about what are people thinking about me, and is it my fault that X happened, and, you know, that, you know, and Scientology really, really emphasized that, that somehow you were responsible for what happened to you, but even to some degree you were responsible for what happened to others. And I remember when I had left Scientology, but I was still anguishing over the loss of the friends and the loss of the path and the loss of the... And I was driving from... I was coming down every Sunday to sit, uh, to sit in the local Buddhist Sangha in, at Green Gulch in, outside of um, in, in Marin. And I would come down Sundays and do that and drive home. And one of those, I was driving back to Squaw Valley, where I was staying with my parents. And um, 
because I was licking my wounds. And um, there was a huge accident on on 80. And um, it was clear that there was death and there were mangled cars and, you know, of the of the um, trucks of the ambulances trying to come alongside of us. And it was a parking lot of a freeway. And I started to cry. I wept and I banged my steering wheel. I said, this is not my fault. And the degree of egotism in that. And that was a big, that was a breakthrough for me, realizing somehow the popularity of chaos theory had kind of really gotten into, you know, I'd been brought up, my mother wasn't a Christian scientist, but she was brought up as one. So that really, there's a lot of similar stuff. You don't get sick. If you're sick, something's going on, right? And that's very Scientological. So that all of that got mixed in some really terrible brew that made me feel like it's incredibly egotistical that I'm responsible for, you know, the fact that a little kid fell down and banged their knee. It's like I, if I'd had a different thought. I mean, un, I can still do that a little bit. It's unbelievable how awful that is, though. And it's so destructive. So, And that's very, that's a Scientological idea that somehow, especially if anything bad happens to you, what did you do to pull it in? Right. You fell down some stairs to crash in your car to, you know, death in the family. It's like, you know, you're trying to be held responsible at the age of 19 for the breakdown of your father. And, you know, it's like, what did I do to create this? So destructive. Yeah. I mean, there's also benefits to that, right? Because you take care then. But largely yeah. it's very benefit. It's very destructive. Well, and it's interesting because... The- part of that year was probably the the big fork in the road in my life what what do I do now and one was do I stay alive you know it's just like that was a that was a choice that I had to sit there and make and I had to make that choice again you know it's and it's just uh and then after you get through that those dark times and come out then it's just like oh wow that understanding is just a little more so it's just like you know, not that I'm glad I was ever got so close to that point, but I am glad that I get it. And I know that other people are like, oh, I'm going through this. And I'll be like, don't worry, you're going to be fine because this. And I would tell them, oh, I checked myself in the hospital for this. And they're like, wait, what? And it's just like, don't have shame about it. Just let people know. And then they're like, oh, okay. And it's like, yeah, you might want to check yourself in. It's actually kind of a pain in the ass and you got to look at yourself and it sucks. But you join the crew. <laughs> so. That's really what, you know, I think and when you say that, you realize the incredibly importance of, incredible importance of um, empathy and compassion, you know, that that's what you bring from that experience. And yes, it was hellacious for you, but if you hadn't had it, you wouldn't bring, you know, even what the podcast, certainly our session on the podcast, but what you bring to the questions that you ask and the interests that you have and the depth to which you are immediately willing to plunge in terms of a conversation that's all comes from having deeply experienced despair and anguish and and, you know suicidal thoughts and and i'm that's a great empathy and compassion cannot be overrated they're just you know the most important thing it's like sans thanks so much for being on the show oh thank you so much tony it was really great fun thank you Sands Hall on Drinks with Tony. Check out her memoir, Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology. She also teaches at Iowa Summer Writing Festival and Community of Writers at Squaw Valley. Hey, 
Speaking of teaching, I teach novel and screenwriting classes at UCLA Extension, and I also do private book coaching. For those of you who are at the idea stage or you need an edit before querying agents and publishers, yes, I even help with query letters. So if you'd like to work with me from anywhere in the whole wide world, go to drinkswithtony.com book. That's drinkswithtony.com book for more information, and we can schedule a 10-minute phone call on how we would approach your manuscript. Again, that's drinkswithtony.com book, or you can check out all of my upcoming classes, including my free library class, the first Wednesday of every month at the Los Feliz Public Library in Los Angeles. Go to tonyduchesne.com for more information there. Either way, you'll find out what you need to know to work with me. I'm getting testimonials online soon. I have lots of satisfied writers, some of them published, some of them currently in submission with agents, others weeping in fetal position in bathtubs because that's what all writers do. And as you heard on the podcast, storytelling is my new religion. I needed something after leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses, so I adore every aspect of storytelling. You have no idea. Drinkswithtony.com slash book. Next week on the show, we have Robert Annecy. He's the author of The Gloves, A Boxing Chronicle, and The Last Bohemia, Seems from a Life in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Hey, thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. I'll see you next week.